Scripture today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for their privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Amen. God bless you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Brian, what did you end that verse there for? But I did. Uh, in Bible college, part of our pastoral minister class was to read this book called The Small Church is Different. And in the book, the author just compared and contrasted the advantages and disadvantages and challenges if a minister was to pastor a big church in a big community to pastor in a small church in a small community. And you guys know how it is when you're in school. There are some subjects you really, you want to read the book that the professor gives you or the teacher gives you and you're all into it. And there are some things you just say, no thank you. For me, this was a no thank you book. But... I'm telling you, this guy really spelled out the challenges and the blessings of the small church, not saying that, you know, one was better than the other. He wasn't saying that. And as I look back on it now, I was in a denomination where most of the young guys coming out of Bible college would pastor a church that had less than 30 adult members. And that's a huge amount of pressure to put on a young preacher, huge amount. And the only way to show your worth to the upper echelon of the church world was to get in there and for that church to really grow. This is the way, one, people consider your anointing is real. If you can go and you guess in your own mind and the natural thinking, you can grow this church, you have the anointing of God. And if you don't grow the church and you don't move the church, you're not anointed. And for me in this denomination that I was in for a long time, I was cool with that because that's a good way to weed us out. I mean, you're going to find out the men who want to work and, and do what's needed to be done and the men who don't. And I was fine with that. Most of me and my friends, we were the weeded out ones. Even though we and, and were successful in what we'd done, when you went to talk to the bishop, they said, well, we're not going to move you. But I said, this is the way the game's played. You grow the church real big and you move us to the next destination. But they didn't do that. And so uh, that's what happened then. But I thought this guy really laid out really good the small church and the advantage of the small church and the blessings of God in a small church. And that's what I want to talk about today using 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 in the churches of Macedonia and Paul, who he was preaching to when he talk to the Corinthians. Before I move out to the Macedonian churches, I need to put the scripture in context of what he's saying in 2 Corinthians. And I'm really nervous. I've been in church long enough where when you mention money at all in a church and it's heard by the masses, it's always said, 
All the preacher wants is your money. Just give us money, 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 money. That's all you ever ask for is money. And money is a big part of life. Money opens doors. Money closes doors. If you got money, people respect you a little more. If you don't have no money, they ain't got no time for you. So money does play a big part of life in general. And money plays a big part of life in church. But it's not the money that makes the church go. It's the heart behind the person that gives the offering to God and says, I'm giving you me, uh, who I am and what you've done for my life and the way you've changed me and how you minister to me. And I'm just going to give some of what I got to you for your glory and honor to use it as you will. When money is followed with that kind of heart and that kind of intensity, God really does a good work. And so I'm hoping you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. It's not about the money. It's about God using the people of God for his glory and his honor. And whatever he's done for you, just taking a part of that and saying, you're worthy. And I thank you for that. So now to put the passage in context. Jerusalem, people were accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. And in Jerusalem, the believers were very poor. And it was Paul's desire to help the poor in Jerusalem by raising an offering for them. So he would send out his disciples to different churches, and he would say, would you be willing to help the poor saints in Jerusalem? And all these churches were giving. And so the Corinthian church says, hey, you haven't asked us to give an offering. We want to be a part of that blessing. We want to help churches just like these other churches are doing. And Paul says, that's fine. What Paul and his people didn't realize, he had wrote them a letter, and when Paul wrote them a letter, he said some things to the Corinthian church that the church didn't like. And we'll just call them elders for the sake of we can understand it. The elders get the letter, it's read to the congregation, and they said to the apostle, we do not like what you have to say about our church. Therefore, we're going to withhold the offering that we was going to give because we don't like what you say to us. This is all recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul says, I feel bad that I said these things, but I don't feel bad that I said them. Because it was for you to grow and seek God and serve God. And he says, but I have a question for you, Corinthians. If this was on your heart to do, he goes into chapter 8, why don't you do what God put on your heart? He said, now you have all these things working in your church, and he called these services grace. Preaching, teaching, gifts of prophecy, gifts of healing. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he says, are working in your church. Why would you not want to serve God in this grace as well? Meaning that giving an offering was by the grace of God and what God done in our heart. And he says, so I'm sending Titus down the road so that you fulfill the obligation that you had made to God that you was going to help the church. You don't have to, he said, but I'm sending Titus down the road to hopefully you will consider what I'm saying. And then he says, I want you to remember these churches in Macedonia. And I will use them as an example, he says, of the grace of God on the people of God wanting to serve God. So he says, I want you to see their example and follow their example and what they've done. So that's the scripture in context and what he was doing. Paul, on his second missionary journey, he had hoped to strengthen the churches he planted in Galatia and Pergia on his first missionary journey. After that, he, he, Silas, and Timothy, they wanted to go west to the unchurched region. And you can see on the map here, they wanted to go up that little place called Bithynia. That's where they wanted to go, Asia and Bithynia. 
That was their destination. We want to go reach this part of the land with the gospel of Christ. But the Holy Spirit said, no, you will not do that. So while Paul was in Troas, he had a vision. In the vision, a man from Macedonia stands before him and he says, come over and help us. Paul says, this must be the will of God. He's forbidding us to go to where we want to go. I have this vision that I'm supposed to go to Macedonia, so I'm going to go to Macedonia. So he crosses and he goes into Macedonia. In Macedonia, there's three places that he wants to go for his missionary journey. There are Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And in our New Testament, we have the book of the Philippians, and we have First and Second Thessalonians in there as well. So he goes there and he preaches the gospel to them. After the fact, he writes these churches, and in all these letters, this is what Paul says about these churches, these three areas that he ministered in. One, he mentioned their liberality and open-heartedness, their joyousness and patience in trial and persecution, their activity in spreading the Christian faith, and their love of the brethren. This is how he highlighted them and commended them for what they'd done. But these are also characteristics of Paul. This is who he was as a believer. When Christ saved him, changed him, and made him, he just went all out with all he had to preach the gospel. So him and these three churches really worked together to get things done. But what was it? Why did God forbid Paul and his associates to go where they wanted to go to preach the gospel? Did they not need the gospel in Pontius or Bithynia? Did they not need to hear the word of God, follow the word of God? And God said, don't go there. I have a will and I have a way. Why go to these areas in Macedonia? And I want to say three things of why I believe God asked Paul to go there. The first one was poverty. They were broke. The Roman government, Roman soldiers, and the plight of war stripped them of all their worldly possessions. It wasn't like Corinthians. They had all their fake gods. They had all their fake temples and sanctuaries. And everybody wanted to go there because there was a lot of bad things going on. So they wanted to go there. Who wants to go to a ravaged land where there's nothing happening? Nobody. They were poor. They needed help. And they asked Paul for help. Isn't it funny that people who are really hurting down and out, they need something and they'll go to anything to find the something that they need when they're hurting. And we know the typical stuff, drugs, drinking, extramarital relationships, anything like that we go to because in that moment we find some kind of help, do we not? The unfortunate thing is we have a hangover afterwards. And we find ourselves in the toilet seat throwing up all morning saying, well, that didn't work at all like I'd planned. But they were in deep poverty and they heard the gospel. They needed the gospel. And if your God is really real, I'm going to run to this God and see if he will help me. So they were hurting. And Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brothers, we do you the wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction... The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. God had changed them. God had touched them. And it didn't matter what was happening around them. They just wanted to help. God don't necessarily ever change the situation, but he changes the heart. And heals our heart so that in the situation, 
we can serve him and follow him. It's still there. They were still poor. They were still war ravished. Their land was still torn. But somehow God got down in their heart and reached them and touched them and changed them. And they had a way to say, it's all right. God is on my side. He didn't change my situation or circumstance, but he changed my heart. Secondly, they had persistence. They knew and understood their situation. They knew they were poor. They knew they were hurting. They knew what was going around, on around them. But still, they pleaded with Paul to accept their offering. Paul did not want to receive their gifts. He knew their situation. He knew what they were in. And he didn't want to do it. And they said, wait a minute. We are the people of God. Don't judge us by the externals around us. Don't see what's happening around us. Look at our hearts. Look at what Christ has done in our lives. We want to help these poor brothers, and we're pleading with you, Paul, to accept this offering. Paul mentions this as well in verse 3. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Don't overlook us, they said. We are going to give to the glory of God. God will do with us how he wants to. He will minister what he wants and how he calls us. He'll take care of that. But don't deny us, Paul, the opportunity to help our brothers and sisters. The third thing they done was they gave permission. They gave their whole lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had accepted him as Lord and Savior. And they were saying, Lord... Here I am. I am your servant. Do with me what you will. I give you permission to take my life over, to take my heart over, to take me over. And whatever I have, Lord, belongs to you. Giving more than Paul hoped for. Then in turn, they worked with Paul on his desire to help the poor believers in Jerusalem. So they gave God permission to work in their lives. And then they said, this is how you're going to work. This is how you're going to touch. And this is how you're going to move. I'm going to flow, Lord, with where you're working with me at. You run my life. And then, Paul, we believe in what you're doing, Paul. And Paul sent strangers to them, people they didn't even know. Now, ain't none of us going to give money to strangers. We just ain't going to do it. They call you on the phone. Uh, me and Amy's got this little handy dandy thing. Number we don't know. Now, what I do now is... I don't talk back to it because when you talk back, it will say, hello, this is a message from so-and-so. So I just wait for that joker to hang up. I ain't giving them nothing. Strangers come to them seeking money from this apostle, and they say, we give you permission to represent us in this. Paul says this as well in verse 5. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They had turned themselves over to God, said, use us for your glory and honor. What doors are open, we'll walk through. And those you send us, Lord, will be there for. Paul says, uh, they really helped us. But Paul, like many a pastor, many pastors do it, many a church member. You know, members in church, they leave and they go somewhere else for multiple reasons. Members leave churches, multiple. Pastors leave churches for multiple reasons and many a seeker. Now, there was a time when it was called the seeker-sensitive movement where you wanted to reach people who weren't going to church, so you did certain things to, write to reach these seek seekers. But the seekers going from place to place, and they might say, well, 
okay, you got a great children's church program, you got a great nursery, your singing's great, whatever, whatever. We'll camp out with you for a while. Pastors go in, they see a congregation, and they can square that congregation right away. Well, yeah, that's a possibility, or see you later, Charlie. Members, when they're voting on a minister, they can pretty much sum you up. Uh, you're for us, or you got to go captain. That's the way it is, is it not? So this, this is what happens. So Paul's seeing this big land over here in Bithynia. He's saying, why wouldn't I want to go to this big land where there's a lot of population, a lot of people I can reach, and there may not be as many headaches. I may not have to have headaches to build a lot of things because it's already there. So I want to go there, Lord, because it's a good field to reach. The preacher says, I want to go there. Today's pastor wants to go to a church with at least 200 people where you don't have to worry about nothing. That's the way it goes. Seekers want to go where they're just kind of in the mix where nobody recognizes them or know who they are so they can just come and go as they want. It's all out there. They think the big church in the big situation in the big town is where it's happening at because they believe that is where the work of God can best be done. But here... Jesus Christ said no. He said, I'm not sending you up there to where it's all happening at. He says, no, it is in a small body of believers that I do my best work. And I want to say, why did God call Paul to reach small churches? Why are 62% Protestant churches in the United States of America have less than 78 adult members? Those that ain't closing down are struggling. They're struggling and they're hurting. But Jesus says, I do my best work within the small body of believers. And I believe there's only one word for that. And I might totally miss the boat, but I'm throwing it out there for you anyway. And the one word is unity. Unity of the body. From this word, all other graces of service, preaching, teaching, and all the things we do in the church... And all the graces of giving come under this one word, unity. And unity begins with relationship with the Trinity. Your relationship with the Father, your relationship with the Son, and your relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's where unity begins. Now, Paul did write to Philippians and he says, you guys are bickering and fighting too much. So Brian, how can you say we need to walk in unity when the disciples fought and the churches fought? I'm going to present something to you, and I, I hope it don't go too south with all my um, friends saying you're totally wrong, and you guys saying you're wrong. But I think God and Jesus bickered for a minute. And I think they bickered when Jesus says, hey, is there another way you can do this? Do I have to go to that cross? Did he not? He questioned God. He questioned the will of God. Do I have to go to the cross? Do I have to do this? Don't you have another way that you can do this, Father? God did not do anything. This is my will. Go do what you got to do. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, Lord, my, not my, what I want to do, but what would you have me to do? The Trinity worked together in unison to fulfill the will of the Godhead. We have to do the same thing. We have to have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in our lives. And what I want to say about that is that God created you. He made you. 
You belong to him. We are created in his image. So God created us. The son saved us. He saved us from an old way of life. He saved us from going to hell. He saved us from doing the wrong thing. He saved us at the right time. God created you. Jesus saved you. And the Holy Spirit, he sealed you. That day when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, something in your heart turned. You might have not knew what it was. You might have not understood it. But something in you turned. And you said, you've done something in my life that I'm so glad. Maybe it was in water baptism. When you went down in that water and you came up, you felt a difference. But something happened in your life, uh uh-oh, where the Holy Spirit, he sealed you. God created you, made you, Jesus saved you, and the Holy Spirit sealed you. And the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father must work together in our lives as an individual for us to have unity as a congregation. Secondly, we must have unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That simply means preferring her or him above yourself, laying yourself aside and saying, you mean more to me than I mean to myself. And of course, hopefully they would say, well, you mean more to me than I mean to myself. Hopefully we work together as a body of Christ and say, I want to prefer you over me. Okay, Brian, that's a lot of ghibli goop. How does this really honestly work out? And I want to lay it down for you how I see it working in our church. The worship team on Sunday morning service. I put out on Tuesday or whatever the scripture and some kind of goofy name as to title it. Allie and Darla get on there and they put the service together with the, uh, the whole worship team, the worship leader, and we go back and forth. But the songs every Sunday work out to the preaching of the sermon. I never ask them what to play or what to say. I never asked Darla what to put on the bulletin. She just goes to work. And she goes, man, this, I think this is it. Now, she might send back to me like, uh, okay, this is what you mean by this particular sermon. I say, yep, you got it right on. You nailed it. I don't have to dictate everything that goes on. We work together as a worship team. And hopefully we put a significant, really good amount of time in it. And we bless you by the worship. And let anything get out of whack in the worship team. And you know it. It gets out of whack, does it not? But we work and we function and we flow together. And when we do that in unity, the congregation is blessed. And the congregation moves. Their nurture and outreach on the new beginning service, putting that together. Having communion. We flowed in that. The stewards, getting things done with the budget and the building. These are things I've mentioned before. But all these things, each commission works together. Miss Garrett doing the children's church and those in helping the children's church. All of us flow and work together. And when we say to the Lord Jesus Christ, work in me and work through me and you be glorified. When that happens to us, we come together in one and we move as the body of Christ in one. But when one of us fall out of that and say, I'm not willing, it hurts the body. And the body has to scramble and has to work. But each commission, each ministry really does a good work to help us flow and and work as one. And the deacons, of course, sending out things and taking care of people, talking to people, visiting, uh, doing communion, things we do. Everybody works together to make us one. But my whole focus this morning on unity was last Sunday. 
Now, we had to have an emergency board meeting because, unfortunately, we live in a world where governments and, whoo, dog, you got to do things right by the book. So we had to have a meeting. We had a board meeting, did we not? But right over there to my left, when I was walking around, all these ladies got together and boom, just like that. I mean, we got to have a board meeting. Nobody said nothing about a ladies' ministry meeting, but it was happening right over there. Those ladies all came together, and they worked together, and they seemed to me, I might be wrong, but they were happy. And I thought I heard it said, this is how we get things done. I thought I heard that said. But they ran, and they worked as a unit, as a body of Christ. And they said, this is what we need to do as the ladies' ministries to help the congregation. And they do so much in helping people around. But it just fascinated me that that's unity right there. Boom. This is what we got to have. This is what needs to be done. They worked in unity in the body of Christ. This kind of unity working in the lives of this congregation brings love. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. And it certainly does. When you love somebody, it does cover the mess up. Now this is talking about Jesus, his love for mankind, covering our sins and forgiving our sins. But love helps us when we stumble and when we fall. we got to be told we stumble and we fail. But somehow that love comes around and says, hey, we're here for you, man. We love you, man. We got your back, man. Love covers a multitude of sin. But love also lets us know to each other how much we care for each other in the church. This is where the small church is different. It's the love and the care that we have for each other in the congregation that makes everything special. When you're greeting at the door, when you're shaking hands, when we know each other, when you see each other at the ball field, when you see each other out on the town. Now, I'm an introvert. So if I see you from a distance and I know you didn't recognize me and I run the other way, it's not because I don't want to say hi. It's because I'm still trying to figure out Brian. And Amy will say, you need to go over and say hi to them. What do I say? Just go over and say hi. I know, but how do you say hi? In what context do you say hi? I might be in my sweatpants. I'm not in a suit. I'm not in blue jeans and nice shoes. You know, I might have my toboggan on. My, my, I got my face growing. This is, Amy, this ain't the same kind of church I used to pastor. These guys are, they got some etiquette. Not saying Mother Church, that's not, you know, Mother Church had it, but I'm just saying. And so I get nervous, you know. What if I have my uh, night slippers on when I go to Walmart or something? They're going to say, that's our, you guys call me your minister. And for me, I've never been called somebody's minister. And so that's scary for me. And so I'm still working out on that aspect of Brian. But it's here that we love and take care of one another that we show why the small church is different. And the author here in this book, when he lets it all down, he says the small church is different because of the way it takes care of its people. That's why. Not saying that big church is any worse, but in bigger churches you can get lost in the mode. You can just come and go as you please. But in the small congregations... You know you're missed, and people call on you. And a lot of people say, I don't want everybody to know my business. That's fine, but you know we're here for you. We are here to help you. The small church is different, and it's different because the people in the small church take care of one another, and they're not bound and burdened by helping somebody out. They just go, and they do the work. 
So when God told Paul, he says, I want you to go to Macedonia, and I want you to minister to these people, and he built all them small churches. And you know what? All them small churches worked together and made a huge difference in somebody else's life. This dude hit it right on the head. The small church is different, and it's different because they know how to take care of one another. And this, my brothers and sisters, is why Christ loves the small church. And for that, Brian Jebedon is thankful. Would you stand with me this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, I, just, I want to thank you so much for the word of God. The word of God always brings clarity to our situation and to our life. And in the word, we find your direction and we find your guidance. We find you. And I'm so thankful for the word this morning, Lord, that you have a special place in your heart for the Oak Street Brethren. You want to use us for your glory and for your honor because we love and we care and we want to serve you and we want to follow you and we want to be our best for you. I thank you for what you do in the members of these, this congregation and all the lives of the people who attend this church. They do want to make a difference. We want to make a difference. And we want to be in the unity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that you touch us, that we can touch our brothers and sisters and then touch those around us for the glory of God. I pray that you spoke to our hearts this morning, that you've ministered to us, Lord, and that we will respond to you in the way you want us to respond. Lord, this morning we give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.